Hello, waterfowlers. It's the old timer coming to you from downtown Memphis with episode 45, part two. And it's entitled Chicago, the Climbing Brothers and the Tremont Hotel, part two. As you know, for part one, I did mostly Chicago. So this part two will be mostly the Climbing Brothers and the Tremont Hotel. But as far as part one on Chicago, when I covered it in the podcast of some 25 minutes, that really shortchanged Chicago. Is it's a, Chicago was such an important part of our waterfowling history. As uh, far as game dealership and commission and all the game that they handled, it rivaled New York. And really by the 1880s, it probably had taken over being the game emporium of the United States, taken over from New York. As New York's game supply had decreased due to all of the heavy hunting on the eastern seacoast in the area to the a little bit just to the west of it. So Chicago's is extremely important. And before I start the uh, part two, I just want to give a little bit about a commission dealer in Chicago and the importance that it. I'm just going to take one year, 1873, and this will come from the American Sportsman for December the 27th, 1873. And I'm quoting, to some extent, many carloads are parts of carloads of the various kinds of wild game reached the Chicago from the West every day during the autumn and winter season of 1873, consigned to commission merchants and were distributed to shippers and retailers. Albert Page and George Wilkinson, who during the 1873 season, the game trade especially, would by the end of the 1873 winter season have reached not less than 25,000 prairie chickens alone, to say nothing of the quails, ducks, geese, venison, smoked, antelope, hams, etc., of which they were continually receiving large quantities. A careful canvas among the commission men had satisfied them at a low estimate the wild game trade of Chicago amounted not less than $500,000 a year. The following are some of the figures of the estimated receipts of the 1873 season and the prices paid. Prairie chickens, 50,000 duck dozens were received. That's 300,000 at $3.25 per dozen, which amounted to $152,500. Quail, 25,000 dozen at a dollar 25 per dozen which totaled 31,250 pheasants 5,000 dozen at $3.25 per dozen which totaled 16,250 dollars rabbits 20,000 dozen at 75 cents per dozen which amounted to 17,500 dollars ducks 10,000 dozens. Now that's 120,000 ducks at one commission house, and they sold for $2 per dozen, which amounted to $20,000. Wild pigeons, 5,000 dozens at a dollar per dozen, which amounted to $5,000. Wild turkeys, 200 dozen, or 24,000 pounds at 12.5 cents per pound, which totaled $3,000. Squirrels, 200 dozen at a dollar per dozen, which totaled $200. Elk, 75 in number, about 400 pounds each, 5 cents per pound, 
which amounted to $1,500. Buffalo meat, 400,000 pounds at 7 cents per pound, which totaled $28,000. Antelope meat, 225,000 pounds, 10 cents per pound, which amounted to $22,500. Now, smoked antelope hams were a new thing in the market, just beginning to come in freely from southern Colorado. Battles of antelope, 67,500,000 pounds, sold for 12.5 cents per pound, which totaled $8,437.50. Deer meat, venison, 450,000 pounds at 8 cents per pound, which totaled $35,000. Saddles of venison, 225,000 at 12 cents per pound, which totaled $28,125. And then bear meat to sum it up, 10,000 pounds at 8 cents per pound at $800 total. And that's only a small part of the game. I didn't get list all of it, but that gives you some idea of just one game commission in 1873, how important Chicago was. So let's get on with this podcast part two of Chicago, the Kleiman Brothers and the Tremont Hotel. And as I mentioned, this will be basically on the Kleiman Brothers and the Tremont Hotel. And the Kleiman Brothers were basically in that Chicago area, and the Tremont Hotel was in Chicago, the city of. In the springtime of 1855, John B. Drake came to Chicago from Cincinnati. His father, a harness maker from Trenton, New Jersey, died when he was 11, causing him to have to work in a store while obtaining an education. At 16, he took a job at a Lebanon, Ohio tavern, the Williamston House. In 1845, he embarked to Cincinnati, where he worked as a hotel clerk for a pair of hotels, Pearl Street House, and later when the Burnett House opened in 1850. It was one of the finest and largest hotels in the western country at that time, talking about the Burnett House. Having saved enough money prior to his arrival in Chicago, he purchased a quarter interest in the Tremont House in 1855, which stood on the southeast corner of Lake and Dearborn Streets, a hotel at that time that had no equal in the West. Five and one-half stories high, it had been built in 1850 after having been burnt down twice previously to this time. First time in 1839 and the second time in 1849. The original having been built in 1833. After its construction, it was stated by the Chicago Tribune that in early springtime, it was impossible to drive a stage to the Tremont House and the passengers had to walk some two blocks on account of the marshy state of the ground and the horses could not navigate through it. He became the sole owner of the Tremont House in 1861. It was said the Tremont's earliest guest before it burnt down from the hotel's front steps could shoot ducks swimming in the surrounding marshlands. What better way to harness the local resources and build his reputation in a new city, Drake thought, than by hosting an elaborate game dinner party for elite guests. The menu would feature the region's finest game in quantities and variety unavailable anywhere else. Each year, his cooks would broil and roast wild game, 
especially waterfowl, which represented a significant part of the wildlife that inhabited the region. The first game dinner at the Tremont House, September the 5th, 1855, drew less than 50 people, attended by the leading men of the city and county. Wildfowl delicacies served, whether broiled or roasted, included blue-winged teal, wild pigeons, prairie chickens, grouse, sandhill cranes, woodcocks, plover, and reedbirds. But what started as a relatively modest affair grew quickly in both popularity and culinary ambition and into a must-attend annual event, nearly as much an institutional part of Chicago as was the stockyard. The game came from the surrounding area, and it required no ingenuity to supply all that an educated gastronomic system could desire. Reporting such was Henry Isingberg, who was born near Chicago, who wrote in 1859, When one would look upon the water of Lake Calumet, now Lake Calumet was just south of Chicago, and as you're going to find out, it is a famous, very early owned duck hunting area. So, quoting again, when one would look upon the waters of Lake Calumet from a distance, it would look like plowed ground, for the water was so covered with a feathered army in the spring and fall of the year. Between 1860 and 1880, Chicago's population would more than quadruple, and for years the great annual November game dinner, given by Drake at the Tremont House, became a yearly tradition of good food, entertainment, and celebration centered around Thanksgiving. Nearly every wild bird and animal that was fit to eat was on the Tremont House Bill of Fare. The 1866 Epicurean Game Dinner was in late November, and a summary of the bill of fare was reported by various newspapers, with the glowing words as the bill of fare was beyond compare. The Brooklyn, that's the Brooklyn, New York Daily Eagle, reported on the bill of fare. Roast prairie chicken, roast black bear, roast wild turkey, roast saddle venison, roast mallard duck, roast canvasback duck, Roast wild goose, roast redhead duck, roast brant, roast wood duck, roast sandhill crane, roast gray duck, roast partridge, roast seal duck, roast spike tails, royal quail, royal plover, royal snipe, royal boo wing teal, royal shovelbill duck, royal squirrel, royal venison steak, royal rabbit, royal bullyball. Now, folks, that's a game dinner right there, folks. <laughs> we we certainly don't see a game dinners like that anywhere in this country. Continuing on, the traditional annual game dinner came to an end in 1871 when the Tremont House was burnt to the ground along with 17,500 other buildings in Chicago, which were torched by the infernal labeled as the Great Chicago Fire. Drake at the time had owned the Tremont House outright for one year. That same year, Drake joined the newly organized Tolleson Gun Club, which was located on the banks of the Calumet Marsh in Indiana, only a few miles from Chicago, and that's in Indiana. So Chicago is located in the northeastern part of Illinois, and right across the line was was Indiana and the Calumet Marsh, which right below Chicago, also in Illinois, extended over to Indiana. The Chicago Tribune wrote that it was located right in the center of the duck and fish region. 
By 1893, the club owned 2,300 acres, enlarging its acreage from its original 60 acres, most of the land bought in 1881. The following year, over 8,000 ducks were killed by club members. After the fire, Drake was only able to salvage the money from a safe and a few pillowcases full of silver before the gorgeous structure collapsed. The morning after the great fire on Sunday night, Drake bought the Michigan Avenue Hotel on the corner of Congress Street and Michigan Avenue and renamed it the Tremont House. This was a small family hotel containing about 140 rooms and was the only hotel left on the south side after the fire. His game dinner, scheduled for the next month, was postponed. Between 1872 and 1875, Drake did a rushing business, and the new profits allowed him to purchase, in 1874, the lease of the famous Grand Pacific Hotel, which was one of the first two prominent hotels built in Chicago, Illinois, after the Great Chicago Fire in 1873. Profits also subsidized his game dinners, a tradition he would resume at the new location, and with renewed enthusiasm the following year in 1875. The game dinners given heretofore by Drake at the old Tremont House was one of the features of Chicago in the West, the Tribune wrote on November the 7th, 1875, quoting again, and we are glad to see he intends to keep up the custom. His wild game dinners became fashionable for the rich and powerful in the second half of the 19th century in North America, beginning in 1875 and for the next 18 years. Drake threw an annual party like nothing the city had ever seen or would ever experience again. Here is just a partial list of the spectacular bill affair at the 25th annual game dinner of 1880. It was noted to be a wonderful exhibit of the capabilities of the Chicago game market. Listed under animals, loins of buffalo, lags of elk, saddle of black-tailed deer, saddle of mountain sheep, red deer, saddle of black bear, lag of black bear, saddle of antelope, loin of moose, coon, woodchuck, possums, red squirrels, black squirrels, jackrabbits, English hares, mountain bisons, gray squirrels, fox squirrels, striped squirrels, American rabbit, forest birds listed under that, wild turkey, cedar hen, spruce grouse, pheasants, partridge, prairie chickens, quail, blackbirds, Virginia partridge, red-winged starlings, pintail grouse, ruffle grouse, Carolina dove, listed under marsh birds, jack snipe, sand snipe, yellow lag, plover, golden plover, kildee plover, sand peep, Wilson snipe, leaf sandpiper, rice birds, reed birds, Dunlin sandpiper, rail, curlew, sandhill crane, under waterfowl, Wild goose, Canada goose, laughing goose, canvasback duck, black duck, mallard duck, coot, brant, redneck grebe, long-tailed duck, hooded merganser duck, green-winged till, blue-winged till, bluebell duck, widgeon, ring-neck duck, redhead duck, shoveler duck, scoop duck, ruffle-headed duck, butterball duck, dusky duck, gray duck, arctic goose, game Market prices at Chicago in 1880 was common small ducks, 
$1.25 to $1.50 per dozen, while mallards sold at $1.75 to $2 per dozen for choice birds, and teal sold at $1.50 to $1.75 per dozen. The 1883 menu, as one guest said with tongue-in-cheek, shows a distinct falling off in the game available, as a mere 32 items appeared in the list of roast, and of these 22 were of the feathered fowl. But it was true that in November the 13th, 1880, the Bill Affair listed 28 varieties of waterfowl in which 500 guests attended, such as wild goose, Canada goose, laughing goose, canvasback, black duck, mallard, coot, brant, redneck grebe, wrong-tailed duck, hooded merganza, green-wing and blue-winged teal, widgeon, ring-neck ducks, redheads, wood ducks, gadwalls, pintails, comorants, shovelers, scop duck, buffle-headed duck, butterball duck, dusky duck, gray duck, arctic goose, and sandhill crane. After the fire, what made the later banquets even more impressive was the increasing length to which Drake had to go to to procure his game. It was much more scarce in 1890 or even 1885 than it was in 1855 or even 1871, particularly near Chicago, which developed rapidly after railroad companies laid tracks around the Chicago River. Instead of game from his own backyard, Drake wrote pompous orders on paper to be sent over the telegraph to the distant places where the game and waterfowl were still abundant, and the distant shipments came behind a locomotive in refrigerated railroad cars. Each November, waterfowl and other birds and big and small game would arrive at great expense from the Rockies and Catskills Mountains to the east, the shores of the Chesapeake and the swamps of the Carolinas, a game dinner, a Tribune, a Chicago Tribune newspaper reporter observed in November 1885, now means a great deal more than an expert shot and a good cook. The menu of the 1891 game dinner was a crowning triumph of 36 years of effort to produce a game banquet that could not be surpassed. For months, hunters scoured the wilds of the country in search of game. The fruits of their labor were evidence in the fact that 80 varieties of game found their way into the stomach of some 700 guests. It used to be said on the occasion of the annual game dinners at the Tremont House that an equal variety of fur, fin, and feather could not be served up in any city in the world, and was probably true for no other city was the center of a game-producing region so vast and inexhaustible. By 1894, the advanced planning needed to pull all the ingredients together proved to be too much for the elderly Drake, the entrepreneur. With the glory of the World's Fair full upon it, the Chicago Tribune wrote on November the 14th, Chicago was shocked when John Drake decided to discontinue his celebrated game dinners. It would be allowed to pass into history. Under Drake's regime, the Tremont House in the Grand Pacific became the famous the nation over for its annual game dinners, with some of the finest game ever produced placed on tables for the lucky invited guest. It is now a memory. They were famous for their cookery and Drake's game dinners with their bewildering course of quail, partridge, pheasants, reed birds, shorebirds, ducks, geese, buffalo steaks, bear steaks, and venison. 
and much more, all of which have passed into history. It is only apropos that Drake should die in the month of November of 1895, the same month in which he held his famous game dinners. In 1909, members of the Union League Club of Chicago attempted to revive Drake's game dinner tradition, throwing a dinner for 300 men that furnished a menu that compared favorably with those of the old time reported the Chicago Tribune on December the 9th. The startup dinner lasted just one year. In a letter to a friend printed by the Chicago Tribune in 1857, Drake's era regular Martha Freeman, Eskman, said her husband came home somewhat disappointed, adding that the Union League shindig was a fair substitute for those who hadn't had that privilege of eating with Mr. Drake. For the Tremont House, the many annual game dinners was a gastronomic event of unprecedented interest, presenting a menu with a colorful picture representing the sportsmen on the plains, mountains, prairies, and wetlands taking the various game, from a buffalo down to a squirrel, and from a brant and plover to a quail. The dinners were unique in the annuals of history and contributed a distinctive perspective associated with edible birds and other game animals. They were certainly a prominent social event and was a preeminent legacy for Chicago and unsurpassed in the chronicles as associated with wildfowl, especially waterfowl. Annual game dinners were certainly an astonished wonderment. And now for the Kleiman brothers. In 1873, A. Kleiman bought a hotel at 112th Street in Clinton Road, an old stagecoach road. It was known as the Old Clitterton House and was located on the banks of the Calumet River at the bridge which spanned the Calumet River. Here a hunter could find lodging, food, dogs, powder and shot, boats, guides, and a horse and wagon to go and come with. The Chittenden House was built to house the locals and sportsmen who came from the east and west by the Chittenden Brothers, two of the oldest and best-known sportsmen in that section of the country. After selling, the brothers built a new sportsman hotel at Dexter Park in Chicago in 1874, built to attract duck hunters and more so trap and live bird shooters to the many tournaments held at Dexter Park. That same year, Abe Kleiman rented his hotel to A.M. Dexter for five years so he could devote more time to market hunting and guiding. So that's, that's Abe Kleiman. And as you'll see, that's one of the brothers, which I'm going to get to. The October 1874 issue of the Forest and Stream Sporting Journal stated, William Watchster and Doc Ellickson on the Calumet at Abe Kleiman's in two days killed 100 lake ducks, with Abe shooting a scotch double barrel. For three days in March 1875, Abe on the Calumet River, when everything was frozen except the river, shot 300 ducks. In April, snipe was so plentiful that it was not hard to shoot them. From the 8th to the 15th, the Kleiman brothers bagged from 60 to 100 a day each, and then didn't try very hard either. That's from the Forest and Stream of October 1874. Across the river from Abe's was his brother's Henry's place, about a quarter of a mile before Abe's place. Thomas Benner's house was a favorite resort during the ducking season. The house of Charlie Reese, or Squirrel Reese, as he was called by many, was situated on the border of Wolf Lake, about a mile and a half east from Kleiman's Hotel. 
That's Abe Clements. In the days of the stagecoach and muzzle-loading flintlocks, no small number of persons in and about Chicago shot game for the market. All excellent shots were their long, fouling, muzzle-loading pieces. When breech-loaders came available, they frequently graduated into champion's marksmen. Lynn Williams of Buffalo market-hunted around Chicago beginning in 1855, some years clearing $2,000 a season. The Kleinman brothers, in the order of their age, were John, Abe, Henry, and George. They were also successful market hunters, all of them, for the most part using decoys and duck calls for mallet shooting, and they were excellent live bird trap shooters. Henry Joyce in the euphemistic and apt name of Swamp Angel. John was a member of the Kennecott Club, a trap pigeon shooting club organized in 1852 at Chicago. He always shot on the team in club contests. At pigeon shooting, he was second to none. George, Abe, and William belonged to the Chicago Shooting Club, which was a trap and wild pigeon shooting, which was organized in 1875 and was the largest trap shooting club in Chicago. Abe was a hard man to beat in a live bird match. He shot many matches with Bogardus. And most everybody as a historian will know Adam Bogardus, who was a market hunter and an outstanding trap and pigeon shooter. He shot many matches with Bogardus and invariably held his own. He was very popular with the shooting fraternity. Abe and Bogardus were two of the superstars among shooters of live passenger pigeons in those early days. In January 1879 at New York, Abe in two nights mixed 13 shots while shooting at 800 glass balls, thus tying Bogardus in a match. John, Abe, Henry, and George were for years well-known Western shooting figures at all trap tournaments. At one time, Chicago sportsmen were much addicted to pigeon matches, as there was considerable traveling talent loose in the country who occasionally came to Chicago in search of matches. It was a local custom to accommodate all comers, and the man always chosen to carry the Chicago banner was George Kleiman, the old duck shot. On fast birds, he was sure to kill above 90, quite often 96, sometimes even better out of 100. He did this with an indifferent-looking gun that, that cost about $30. In 1895, he won the first-ever champion live bird shot of America medal, emblematic of being the best live bird pigeon shooter of America while shooting a $17 pump gun, which I just mentioned earlier. Captain Bogardus of Elkhart, Indiana, market hunted for the Chicago Market Commission houses. Bogardus considered Henry and Abe the greatest duck shooters in the world and two of the best at pigeons from the trap, as were brothers John and William, while Bogardus was generally regarded as the best field shot in the world. Abe won the Illinois State Championship in 1880, while John won in 1882, and George won in 1886 and 1888. It was in 1868 that Borgardus beat Abe at Chicago to be declared the champion of Illinois. 1869 was a year that Bogardus and Abe squared off for the first time at Chicago's Dexter Park for a pigeon shooting contest at a time when the park was considered the mecca of wild pigeon shooting. They could do no better than tie each other, each shooting 88 out of 100 pigeons. 
Having no more birds there to shoot the towel, they adjourned to meet in Chicago, where Abe killed 91 and Bogardus killed 90. They shot against each numerous times, with each winning some, but Bogardus ended up winning the most. Bogardus remarked about their opinion on using muzzleloaders. They had used muzzleloaders all their lives and could not be persuaded that breechloaders were good until Abe found that I could beat him and use one. He then bought himself a W.C. Scott, and John and Henry soon followed his example. In 1877, Abe bought a Charles Daly breechloader, which he and his brothers all used in duck hunting and live bird trap shooting. Abe's younger brother, Henry, was one of the best shots that ever faced the traps. As a duck and field shot, he had no superiors and few equals. It was uncommon for one of the climbers in good ducking weather to shoot less than 100, and many of them were canvasbacks on the Calumet in the early days. The Climbing brother's father was known as Old Man Climbing to all the old-timers about Chicago. He was born 1811 in Wittenberg, Germany, and came to the United States in 1833, where he settled in Pennsylvania. He and the family moved to Chicago in 1844, and nine months later moved to Calumet, later to become South Chicago, crossing the Calumet River at Chittenden's Bridge, a few miles south of South Chicago at that time, and in doing so, found himself traveling along one of the very worst roads that it was ever his misfortune to follow. His little family consisted of a wife and three small boys at that time, the eldest John, the next Abraham, and then Henry the baby all under five years of age, were huddled together under the white cover of the old-fashioned immigrant wagon. While living near the Chittenden Bridge, two more boys were born, George and William. Now, I haven't mentioned William much. William did some trap shooting, but he was not a market hunter. And I, what I can find out about him, he was sick a lot, so you don't find much in the history books about him. Continuing on. In 1855, the old man discovered that all the unoccupied land belonged to the government and was subject to entry at the enormous price of $1.25 per acre. He bought 40 acres. Settling near Calumet Lake, a small house was erected. A long distance by wagon from their homestead to what was in the city of Chicago, their father was a practical man and turned his hand to using the natural products of the soil. It was not long before the two oldest boys began shooting ducks for the Chicago market at the request of their father. As long ago as the boys could remember, their father hauled the ducks to Chicago's game market, located on South Water Street, while the boys shot on the march and kept the wagon loaded. And legend has it that the boys were born with their legs dressed with rubber boots, and as they grew older, another variation of this was their Long clothes were rubber boots. Ammunition was doled out very carefully, and they were instructed to make every shot count by their father. Market ducks were sold for from 75 cents to $1 per dozen, and the canvas backs were sold at from 2 to $3 per dozen. The increase in the family caused a larger house to be erected, which was paid for from the proceeds of the sale of ducks. Having learned to shoot with the Indians, John, on arriving at his 18th birthday, induced his father to allow him to shoot for himself. 
Arrangements were made and John was to pay one dollar and a half per week for board, furnish his own ammunition. E.E. E. Eaton, a gunsmith on Lake Street in Chicago, gave him powder and a wonderful gun as John described it. He killed a duck with every one of his first 30 shots. Enjoying the proceeds of the sale of the ducks that he killed, it was a proud day when John returned home with $9, the proceeds of his first sale. Later, the gun furnished by his father was not up to John's idea of what such a firearm should be. He confided his trouble to George T. Abbey, a proprietor of a gun store on Lake Street in Chicago, from whom he had purchased ammunition. Abbey was a gunmaker who was in Utica, New York from 1845-1852 and at 815 Lake Street, Chicago, Illinois from 1852 to 1874. He was partners with E.E. E. Eaton, who I mentioned a minute ago, until 1870. Before John left the store, he was the proud possessor of a $30 gun with stub and twist barrels, an immense quantity of ammunition, and all of the necessary accessories that went to make up a first-class outfit in those days. Abbey was primarily a gun dealer, but he made some guns using imported actions and barrels between 1865 and 1874. He made muzzle-loading rifles, shotguns, and a few target pistols, as well as early breech-loading double shotguns. John's greatest trouble now was the unpaid bill of $60 to Abbey that constantly presented itself before his eyes, but he was not along in squaring the account, having shot a duck with every one of his first 30 shots. In 1882, he shot 250 snipes on the Calumet Wash after 2 p.m. in one afternoon. There never was a ground better suited for ducks and other waterfowl than Calumet Lake country, according to the Kleinman brothers. The lake itself was full of wild celery and rice, mostly rice. Other lakes to the east of Lake Calumet, such as Wolf Lake and Hyde Lake, and all of the many streams and sloughs of the Great Marsh, simply swarmed with waterfowl. It was here where the Kleinman brothers got their training in gunning ducks, and their father expected every one of them to do their duty and help out on the regular load of ducks. Papa Kleinman used to haul a wagon load of ducks into Chicago every day in the season, and if, when he got back home in the evening, his boys did not have another wagon load ready to take out in the morning, they had to do a tall lot of explaining to Papa, besides showing him just how many birds each one had killed to a horn of powder when young and shooting muzzle loaders, or how many shells they used per the number of ducks they had when shooting breech loaders. As the boys got older, especially Henry and Abe, they began to shoot in other territories other than the Calumet Swamps, but they never ventured outside the Mississippi Valley. They hunted the Illinois River, especially Swan Lake and Susnaxwine near Henry, Illinois, the Kanakee Marshes in Indiana, the Mississippi River Swamps at New Boston, Illinois, the sunk lands of northeastern Arkansas and southeastern Missouri, and Realfoot Lake in Tennessee. On Realfoot Lake, A. Kleiman said in 1882, Well, you can just say that it's the greatest hunting resort that I ever saw. You must know that the lake is really sunken lands flooded with water. The ducks are thick there when it gets very cold in the north, and it has great feeding grounds. When I was there a few years ago, there was no boats, no house to stop at, or anything. I understand there is a house with boats there now. 
as the hunting season lasts fully two months. It pays any sportsman to pay a visit to that section of the country. You can also say there are any quantity of geese, brants, etc. there. Overall, Henry stated there were many ways of shooting ducks. Jump shooting, flight shooting on a pass or flyway, by calling, and by decoy shooting. The brothers utilized all these measures depending on the situation. Henry stated that in the fall, the ducks arrived in the Calumet region in this order. First were the wood ducks, then the teal, followed by redheads and ringbills, which are blackjacks. The latter two being deep water ducks were hunted best over decoys. The mallards and all the puddle ducks arrived before the canvasbacks, bluebills, and butterballs, the latter three arriving about November the 1st. He said that mallards worked best to a call in decoys in the fall than the spring. The mallards didn't decoy or work a call so well in the spring because they were already mated and didn't like going into a set of decoys. However, bluebills and canvasbacks decoyed best in the spring, as did pintails, according to Henry. Among the last birds to come down were the golden eyes, the sheldrakes, and the mergansas. In the spring, the order of migration of the birds were different altogether. The pintails and mallards were the first birds to show up. These marsh ducks, according to Henry, don't seem to be so certain about the weather as the open-water diving ducks and sometimes come here in the winter and seesaw up and down. Sometimes they go the further south during the night and push on north again in the morning as far as the ice will let them. When the deep-water ducks arrived, it was pretty safe to suppose that the weather was going to stay warm. That's Henry quoting. Going on, Henry noted that the best of mallard shooting is in the timber of the Mississippi River. There will always be ducks there in a season of high water, if there are ducks anywhere. He hunted frequently in Illinois near New Boston in the blackwater flooded timbers of the Mississippi River with decoys and calling. In a style of hunting there where the ducks couldn't see the decoys very well because of the timber, I had to keep up my calling all the time. On the Illinois River, Henry remarked, Sometimes on the Illinois River you get timber shooting like that. I know once I found an open hole in the timber near Hennepin Lake and put out a lot of mallards. There was a road cut through the timber, and I put out my decoys right in front of this road. I got into a treetop nearby and went to calling. The mallards began to come in right along the road, and they dropped into the decoys at once without any warning. I killed 128 mallards in a little while that afternoon. I noticed one thing regarding timber shooting was that it was very hard for me to cross two birds, as Father always taught us boys to do in our early days on the Calumet. The old gentleman expected about so many ducks for every pound of powder he gave us, and it paid us to double two birds to the shot whenever we could, and we usually could over the decoys. But in the timber, the birds would come dropping down one rat over another, and I only could get one at a time. Another thing about this timber shooting is nearly all the birds that are just wounded in the air kill themselves by the fall through trees. You lose very few wing-tipped birds. On the marsh, you will lose, on the average, about one-third of the birds you knock down. But in the timber, you get them nearly all, at least in such timber as where I was shooting. I suppose a great many shooters would think that I always got out early in the morning if I made any very good bags. To the contrary, I never was a very early riser when hunting. 
and I do not believe in either before breakfast or before daylight shooting. It is that kind of business, shooting all night and away before breakfast in the morning, that has done much to drive away our waterfowl. The birds have got to have some time to feed, and if they are disturbed all the time, morning and evening, they can't feed, and they will leave. I never shot late in the evening as a practice, and never very early in the morning and I think I really got more birds by it because I did not drive them out of the country. Seven o'clock in the morning was about as early as I shot, usually. I have seen some wonderful shooting in my time, and the likes of it we will none of us ever see again. We may console ourselves that the flight has gone further west and all that, but the fact is there is not one duck now to where there was 100 when I was younger and was shooting around the lakes. I wish I could bring some of them back to life again. That was printed in the Forest and Stream Journal in June of 1890. The greatest number of birds Henry ever bagged in one day was 218 with a 10-gauge daily shotgun, double shotgun, all till, and wasn't much over two hours in doing it. He had 60 shells when he got back home. However, in September 1883, he shot 250 after 2 p.m. on Lake Calumet. Now remember, Lake Calumet is just south of Chicago. It's now part of South Chicago, taken in, basically. On another occasion, Henry killed 130 ducks, which 80 were canvasbacks. In one season on, on Lake Calumet, he gunned 5,800. With his breech loader, he always shot brass shells. And when I came home at night, I nearly always had more ducks than I had empty shells. I have killed 52 ducks with 50 consecutive shots shooting on a flyway at Teal, Bluebill, and Ringbills as they came by in twos and threes or larger bunches. On the Illinois River, using decoys and a duck call in timber, he shot 128 mallards in an afternoon. In 1869, a sports from New England visited the Calumet region for some duck hunting. It was then only an hour's drive by rail as by train, 12 miles from the center of Chicago. Arriving late in the afternoon, he watched as the market hunters returned to Jake's place, where he was staying. He watched as each ship came in while each shooter tossed out on the little dock from 70 to 90 duck. At dinner that night at Jake's, he dined with Captain Bogardus and Abe Kleiman. <laughs> Can you imagine that hunt hunting with those, those two famous people? Legendary market hunters and trap shooters going on the, the first morning he hunted with the captain as Bogardus and killed 42 duck. The next morning he was invited to shoot with Abe who left him alone in a blind where Abe had recently shot 96 ducks. Abe ventured to another blind further away. With 18 decoys in front of the blind, the sports killed 31 ducks firing 75 shells that morning. At the time of the Climans, the Calumet region was considered one of the best market hunting areas in the country. First, it had thousands of ducks, and it was so close to Chicago that market hunters did not have to ice the ducks for shipping, and the short distance to the city's market stalls, two, being two hours, made the shipping cost nearly nothing. A good market hunter on the Calumet could make a profit of $6 a day. A late Calumet hunter said in 1884, I think I can say now that its days are numbered. A year or two longer and the duck will know it no more, as Lake Calumet is about surrounded with towns, railroads, and mills. 
Three years later, another hunter said, Now in place of these Ferra Natural, we have nearby Calumet Lake, a new handsome city of brick with immense workshops, a big hotel, a public library, lecture hall, gas sewage, and all the comforts of life, inhabited perhaps by the best house, fed, paid, and generally cared for people on the globe. He's talking about Chicago. They ride to the city by 15 or 20 trains a day for half an hour instead of toiling through sand and mud for three hours as in the did in the 1840s. About 1870, Abe operated and managed the Florence Place on the Calumet River, a popular resort for sportsmen located on then south side of Chicago. In 1873, he built a hotel near Irondale between South Chicago and the Lake Calumet. In 1889, he stopped hunting in the springtime, realizing the damage that it was doing. Besides marking hunting, he profited from selling his hand-loaded shot shells, quotation, shells loaded to order, at James L. Van Usim Sporting Goods Store in Chicago at 101 Randolph Street. Climbins for many years ruled and kept watch of the Calumet Marshes from Critican Bridge to the Grand Forks and of the lakes from Cane Break Island to the South Bay. They were excellent pigeon shooters and market hunters. This in their day and generation was no sin, for the supply of game to them and others was apparently inexhaustible, and the population demanded it. Nonetheless, Henry Climbin, who had hunted the wetlands south of Chicago, lamented the sudden avian loss, writing in 1890, I have killed a good many ducks in my life. I wish that I could bring some of them back to life again. The present generation has forgotten the Kleinman family. Abe died August 12, 1916, at the age of 74. Nevertheless, Abe will forever shine in the annuals of trap shooting. He was, as the old-timers all said, grew supreme in the Calumet region and with him and one of his brothers, John Henry or George, for a guide, it was a certainty that the hunters would not go home empty-handed. As for the Calumet, described as a big pond lying in the center of the big rice swamps, it was drastically altered. Chicago and in its industrial suburbs consumed vast acreage which had been the delightful hunts of thousands of waterfowl. A late Calumet hunter said in 1884, I think I can say now that its days are numbered and a year or two longer and the ducks will know it no more as Lake Calumet is about surrounded with towns, railroads, and mills. Thousands of acres of rushes and wild rice with the wonderful beds of regal white lotus once there have gone forever. The Calumet marshes at settlement time total at least 22,000 acres. Of this, 15,000 were in what is now the city of Chicago, and 3,000 in the city of Burnham, Dalton, and Calumet City. The amount on the Indiana side is unknown, but it probably equaled that in Illinois. Several extensive areas of marsh consisted of, from the west to the east, Lake Calumet, Hyde Lake, Wolf Lake at the Illinois-Indiana boundary, and in Indiana, Lake George and Berry Lake. These lakes, their surrounding areas, and the marshes associated with the Calumet River became known collectively as the Calumet Marshes. Industry, railroads, dredge spoils, drainage, 
pollution, and garbage dumps have been the major intrusion into these 22,000 acres of water surfaces. The intrusion has been so extensive that only 500 acres are left. Waterfowlers, that ends episode 45. It has been a pleasure to do Chicago and its surrounding areas and venture on to the Climbing Brothers. I lived said Abe's death, but I couldn't find really anything on the other brothers' death or much uh, on them too much. You know, it's it was sort of sad to learn that, but they were just outstanding market hunters. The old Tremont Hotel was famous all across the United States. People came from everywhere to attend their dinners. I wished I could be more thorough with Chicago, and I will with future podcasts. As I stated at the very beginning, it was one of our most important waterfowling cities in the United States, and what a wonderful place it was. Folks, we just got through celebrating uh, Thanksgiving. I'm dictating this podcast on December the 5th, so this is, uh, what, I don't know, five or ten days after Thanksgiving. But I just want to say to everybody, my family has been blessed. And thank God for all he has given my family. I hope you could say the same. God is very special. I hope you worship him as he can solve a lot of your problems and my problems. He has been great to me. And I thank him and pray to him. Thank you for everything you've given me, good Lord. As you go through this day, always tell those that you love how you feel each day. Show that you've devoted to their happiness. Remember to keep God in all you do and help those who have not been as fortunate as you have been and to never allow anyone else to define you. If you get a chance, visit my website, waterfowling.net. On there, you'll see a blog. Punch on it and it'll take you to all of my old stories, some which I broadcasted here on this uh, podcast system but others have not been podcasted yet. So view it. You'll also see my old books. Uh, most of them are out of print, but if you'll write me by my contact button on that website, waterfowling.net, I can usually locate some out of print books for you and sell them to you for what I pay for them plus the, the mailing charges. So I leave you with this. May God bless. <laughs>